Good morning. Again, ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. As always, it is great to be here with you all. If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles that are situated under some of the chairs around you. We do think it's important that you follow along in the Word as we go through it verse by verse. Last week, we finished up our study in chapter 17 by taking a look at what Jesus had to say about the coming kingdom and what it was going to be like on that day that Jesus, the Son of Man, returns to this earth. Um, If you were with us last week, you will recall that in our study, we noted how none, okay, but our Heavenly Father know the exact day and time of the coming of His kingdom how Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God during his first kingdom within our hearts, but how the kingdom of God will be consummated by Jesus at his second coming upon this earth. Now, before his second coming, Jesus had to first suffer many things, be rejected. He had to go to the cross for us, take our sins upon his shoulders and die in our place. There was no other way for his kingdom to come. And we noted how the coming kingdom will be a time of of great judgment. It will be a time of of great uh, deception, a time of great destruction, and a time of great separation between those who will be cast out and those who will enter into the kingdom. And we also highlighted the fact that the coming kingdom will be an unmistakable event, that the whole world will witness and know his coming will be like a flash of lightning that stretches across the sky for all to see. Well, in our text today, Luke will record two parables and a short lesson that were all used to teach us about the kind of faith that's needed to be a part of God's kingdom. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, and the title of our study is going to be Contrasting Faith. Okay, Contrasting Faith. We all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety from my Bible. Please do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke writes the following in chapter 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 15. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have just to open it up and allow it to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that as it uh, goes into our ears and and we process it in our minds, Lord, that it would also penetrate into our hearts and that you would use your word to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we come this morning um, wanting to receive all that your Spirit would have for us. Lord, we want uh, to just yield ourselves to you in the work your Spirit desires to do. And so, Lord, we give you this time of study. We ask that you would lead and guide us, and we look forward to all that you desire to say, all that you desire to do in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As you can see just from a a simple reading of our text, Luke records for us two more of Jesus' parables and then follows them up with a short and simple lesson about faith. Really, all all three of the teachings have to do with faith and, and the kind of faith that I believe God is looking for in each and every one of us as followers and believers in the Lord. And for those of you who like to take notes and outline our text, we're going to just break up our text along those teaching lines, okay? In verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at the parable of the woman and the judge. And we're going to see what Jesus is teaching us about courageous faith through this parable. And then in verses 9 through 14, Luke records the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector to highlight our need for contrite faith. And then in verses 15 through 17, Jesus will give an object lesson about children to teach us our need for childlike faith. Throughout Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Luke, as we've made our way through it, we've seen Jesus use various methods in his teaching approach. Jesus has taught parables that were simple stories that conveyed heavenly truths. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan was used to teach the importance of being neighborly towards one another and loving one another, putting others before ourselves. He used parables that were meant to be seen as comparable in their interpretation. They would show things that were uh, in likeness to one another. Okay, in these types of parables, Jesus would identify certain truths or stories that were meant to parallel certain heavenly truths. For instance, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he asked, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. The parable of the soils was also used to compare uh, in likeness, okay, as he took seeds planted in various soils and compared that in likeness to the word of God planted in various hearts. Simple comparisons of likeness. However, sometimes Jesus used parables to contrast differences. Okay, Often arguing from a lesser point to a greater point. For instance, when we covered uh, Jesus' teaching on the parable of the persistent friend. He argued from the lesser to the greater. You guys may recall that a, a parable. Uh, a friend... Uh, came in the middle of the night to his neighbor seeking after bread because an unexpected visitor had come and, and the neighbor was reluctant to help at first. And he basically said, hey, you know, it's, it's nighttime. My kids are asleep. You know, the lights are out. Don't bother me. Go away, right? But the friend persisted. And eventually the guy got up, gave the guy the bread and gave him what he was asking for, right? The application of that parable is not to say that God is an unwilling provider that we have to beg and plead with in order to get him to provide for us. But rather it's to say that if someone like that, a neighbor who's tucked in in bed for the night, if he was willing to get up and help, how much more will our heavenly father help us when we come to him, seeing as he never sleeps nor slumbers, he's always ready to hear for us and provide for his children. And so that's a uh, uh, comparison in differences, okay? An argument from the lesser to the greater. If this person's willing to do it, how much more would God do this for us or how God would answer? And so it's very important that we properly identify the method, the approach Jesus is using in his teaching lessons. For if we misunderstand his approach, we can end up coming to an improper conclusion, okay? And get the wrong idea of what Jesus is teaching. In our text today, Jesus is primarily using contrast. That's why I titled our message, Contrasting Faith. Okay? And he's using it as a means of getting his point across. So let's dive into this first parable and see what Jesus is trying to teach us through the means of contrast. Read with me verses 1 through 5. Then he, speaking of Jesus, spoke a parable to them, speaking of his disciples, 
that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. We'll pause right there. Luke does us a great favor here in actually giving to us the application of the parable prior to recording Jesus's actual teaching. As we've marched our way through the gospel of Luke, we've come across a number of parables. And sometimes Luke would record for us just the parable, uh, leaving us to figure out not only the interpretation of the parable, but also the application of the parable. And then other times he recorded the parable along with the interpretation, but left the application for us to put together. But here Jesus gives us the application to start off with, but doesn't really give us the details of the interpretation. And we need to figure that out for ourselves. We know that the point, the application of the parable is that we need to always pray and not lose heart. But how do we get to this application based upon what Jesus said? We need to properly interpret this parable so that we come away with a proper understanding of who the Lord is, who we are, okay, and how we are to interact with Him. You see, a wrong interpretation can still lead to the same application, but we will be walking away with a skewed view of God and how He wants to work in us and through us. Now, As we look at parables, I want you guys just to remember that a simple way to think about a parable is to think of them as an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. And in order to understand the heavenly truth, we must first identify and understand the components of the earthly story. So our parable starts out depicting two individuals. We have a judge and we have a widow. And we're told a little bit about this judge, that he was in a certain city, that he did not fear God, nor did he regard man. Or your translation may read that he did not respect man, meaning that he didn't care what man thought about him. We're also told a little about this woman that was a widow. She was seeking out justice for herself regarding a certain situation she found herself in. She was wanting the judge to take her case and grant her favor regarding some person that had come against her, an adversary of sorts, perhaps someone that was trying to take advantage of her as a widow. We don't know for certain the exact details of her case because Luke does not share those details with us. Now we have to understand the setting here, what's going on in order to properly grasp what Jesus is teaching us within the context of that day and age. You see, in Jesus's time, there was no such thing as a city courthouse like most cities have today, where every city has a courthouse. You go there and you go into a courtroom and the judge is sitting up there and you've got your, you know, peers and you've got your, you know, benches and all that kind of stuff. That that was not, don't have that image in your head, okay? Because that's not what it was like, okay? When uh, back in that day, a judge would travel from town to town, pitching his tent in a given location for a set amount of time, usually three to five days. Okay? And then uh, when the judge was in their town, those with legal issues would head over to his tent in hopes to have their case heard by the judge. Now the judge, not the law, okay, the judge would set the agenda. Okay? If there were many cases to be heard and the docket was filled, well, the only way to get your case heard would be to bribe the job, judge or his assistants to get your case push ahead of others. Historians actually tell of how many of these judges that were appointed by the Roman government were notoriously crooked, and they were often easily bought off with any sort of bribe. In fact, one commentary I was reading uh, highlighted the fact that they, uh, of an account where uh, that was recorded, historically, they were bought off with beef. So, you know, a side of beef, you know, it's like got some good barbecue. Okay. Yeah. I'll take your case. Um, so however you could, uh, bribe or entice the judge or, you know, his assistants to put your case forward, that it might be heard. That was a okay. And it was actually a very common thing. The widow in our account, it would seem didn't have anything to help her cause. As a woman in that day and culture, she would have been seen as a a second-class citizen at best. 
And uh, also she was a widow, meaning she didn't have a man to stand with her and help her present her case. It's very likely as well that she was a woman of little means. Most widows did not have the means or ability to provide for themselves. They often had to rely upon charity and others to care for and provide for them. That's why we read of in the New Testament, the church often helping and providing for widows and orphans. It would seem that the judge had no interest whatsoever in helping this widow. He did not fear God or God's law that spoke about the need to care for and take care of of widows. Uh, He was no respecter of man either, so he didn't care about what others thought about him. He couldn't care less what others thought about him for not assisting this poor, helpless widow. You know, it's like, oh man, give her a break, man. She's, you know, a widow, you know, he... I don't care what you think. You think I'm a heartless man? I don't care. You know, he just had no regard for what people thought about him. Okay. This man only cared about himself. And this woman had nothing to offer him that would make him interested in hearing her case. The only thing this widow could do was continually harass the judge and not give up in clamoring for him to hear her case. And I imagine, though we're not told specifically, I imagine this probably went on for a day or two, this idea that he was in town, she kept coming persistently, bugging him, and he kept saying, no, no, disregarding. But this woman kept troubling the judge. She was a source of great difficulty to him. And so he decided to finally hear her case, give her what she wanted, just to get her to stop harassing him and being so difficult for him. Because she wore him down to the point where he finally gave in to her persistent demands, he heard her case granting to her the vindication she was seeking after. Now, that's kind of how this all played out. We understand the, the earthly story now. Now, how do we interpret this? Okay? It's very important, you guys, how we interpret this. We know the application is that Jesus was wanting to teach his disciples of the need to pray always and not lose heart But how do we get there from here? You guys, it is very important that we understand that Jesus is teaching using contrast here. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He is pointing out differences. If you don't make this proper assessment from the beginning, you can make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is trying to teach through similarities. And we could walk away thinking that the widow is meant to be a picture of us and the judge is meant to be a picture of God. Listen, that is not what this parable is teaching whatsoever. We are not the widow, okay? And God is not the judge. Take a look at the rest of what Jesus says in verses 6 through 8. He says, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Here we see the contrast. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, basically teaching that if an unjust judge was willing to hear the case of a poor widow that he cared absolutely nothing at all about, how much more will God hear us when we pray to him? We need to note the contrast here because there are many. Let's start with the widow. The widow was a stranger to this judge, but we are the children of God. The woman, she was a widow, but we are called the bride of Christ. The woman, she had no one to stand by her side and, and went to the judge all alone, but we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. You see, the widow, she went begging to a court of law, but we get to come boldly before a throne of grace, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The widow pled out of her poverty, but we have the riches of Christ available to us to help meet our every need. You see, you guys, we are not the widow in this account, okay? You don't want to look at this and say, oh, this is, we're the widow, God's the judge, and, and the, the application is we need to keep praying just like the widow, right? And, and then God will eventually give us what we want. That's not the right interpretation. While that might be the right application, we need to not lose heart in praying, Okay, but it's not the right interpretation. Do you guys understand? 
Nod your head if you're following. Okay, good. All right. Very important. And, and you guys, the same is true of the judge. Look at the contrast between the, the judge and the Lord. You see, the judge was an unjust judge. He didn't care about anyone else, but the Lord is righteous. He loves the entire world. The judge didn't want to hear the widow's case, but our Lord is attentive to our every cry. The judge didn't want to give this woman anything, but our Lord is generous with his gifts towards us. Okay? The judge only helped because she was wearying him, but our God never grows tired of hearing from us and working on our behalf. You guys, the judge is not the Lord. Okay? He is the opposite of the Lord. And if we come away from this parable thinking that we are the widow and the Lord is the judge, then the picture's all wrong. It would lead us to think that God doesn't care about us, that he doesn't desire to hear from us, that he doesn't want to answer our prayers. And then the only way that we can get God to answer our prayers is if we continually badger him and force him to give us what we want. Is that the picture that we want to come away with? No. That isn't how prayer works. Prayer isn't about us getting our will done in heaven, but about God's will done on earth. The application to pray always without losing heart is not an exhortation to continually come to God with the same prayers over and over again, as if to think that through our many repetitions, we gain an audience before God and we can get him to act. We can force him to move. You see, that's the way of the heathens. Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, he said, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. We need to pray always without losing heart because prayer, you guys, it is the avenue by which we open our lives to that which God desires to do. God knows what we really need long before we ever know it. He knows what we're going to need a week from now. God knows what we're going to need a month from now. God knows what we're going to need a year from now. And should the Lord tarry, God knows what we're going to need a decade from now. Prayer is not us informing God of what our needs are. Okay? Yet so many of us treat prayer that way. You know, we pray, dear Lord, you know, let me tell you what I need here in this situation I'm in. You know, I want you to, I want you to know all the details so that you know how to work through them all and, and fully understand what I really need, God, and we lay it all out for God. Okay, this is the situation, God, okay, and here's how you can answer, okay? This is exactly how you need to come in and you need to do it just like this, God. Don't our prayers sound something like that sometimes? Us informing God of our need as we see it and laying out all the details as if he was clueless to the details of our lives that, and of what we really need. How silly of us. God knows our needs long before we know our needs. He knows more details about our lives than we can even begin to imagine He knows the very number of hairs upon our heads. And there is nothing that we can inform God of that He doesn't already know. He knows everything. God loves us. And He is ultimately concerned with our eternal good. And He desires to work towards our eternal good. Not our temporary good, but our eternal good. You see, God has the foresight and knowledge to know what is best for us. While we focus oftentimes on the temporal needs, God is working and focusing upon our eternal needs, desiring to fulfill His eternal good for us each day as He understands the journey that He has for us and the steps that we need to take in ultimately traveling and completing that journey. When we pray, what we are actually doing is opening the door And we are giving God the opportunity to do what he's been wanting to do, what he's been desiring to do, but he will not do against our own will. God will not, you know, force his will upon us. He will not violate our free will. Therefore, prayer, you guys, it opens the door for God to do those things that he desires to do in our lives. 
to fulfill His will and our needs as He sees fit. Again, prayer is about getting God's will done here on earth. That is why Jesus taught the disciples to pray. He said, when you pray, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your name, Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done okay, on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus Himself even prayed, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. Three times He would pray that way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Praying Your will be done truly is the heart of prayer. And some are of the mindset that we need to be very specific in our prayers and that we have to, uh, you know, Really laid out on the line, you know, you got to name it, claim it. You got to go out and just, you know, proclaim it for yourself. You know, you, you have not because you ask not. But I am more inclined to believe that the best kind of prayer is to simply say, Lord, have your way in me. Your will be done, not my own. And that doesn't mean we can't pray for specific things or that we don't pour our hearts out to God in prayer. It's good to do those things. But ultimately, we, we should want God's will for our lives. You see, I believe we can be so specific in our prayers that we end up limiting God. We ask for something we think we need when God's ready to do that and so much more if we would just be open to His will and His plan for our lives. And so don't lose heart in praying. Don't be discouraged in your prayer life. Do not give up. Be courageous in your prayers. Have the kind of courageous faith that's willing to pray, God, here I am. Have your way in me. Okay? Your will be done. Use me as you see fit, God, okay, to accomplish your will here on earth as it is in heaven. Here I am, Lord. I'm open. I'm available. Whatever you want guys, that, that kind of prayer takes great courage. It takes great faith. Because it is surrendering and yielding our all to Him. And while I understand that can perhaps be a scary prayer to pray, isn't it really in our best interest to pray that way? Don't we want God's will for our lives? Don't we trust that God knows what's best for us and how the things that he's doing today are preparing for what's to come. Jesus ended this parable with a question about what it will be like when he, the Son of Man, comes and whether or not he will find faith on the earth. You see, the scriptures talk about how in the end, prior to Jesus' return, how lawlessness will abound and as a result, the love of many will grow cold. Prior to Jesus' return, the world will go through great darkness, great coldness, and the faith of men and women will be tested. And God is wanting to develop our faith through our prayer life, to strengthen us in our prayer life, that we might accomplish His will in us and through us individually, but that He may also accomplish His will in us and through us corporately as the body of Christ, that we understand that as we finish the plan that God has for each and every one of us, that collectively we're working towards a common goal when God would return for his church and be, you know, finished in a sense with that work uh, of the body of Christ. Be open to his will. Pray always without losing heart. Be courageous in your prayer and watch God do amazing things. Let's move along to our next parable as we consider the need for contrite faith in our lives. Read it in verses 9 through 13 to get us going. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We'll stop there. 
Luke again does us another favor. This time Luke tells us the reason Jesus gave this parable and who he was directing it towards prior to the actual telling of this parable. Evidently, there were some in Jesus's midst who trusted in themselves and in their righteousness and despised others. And so Jesus shared this parable as a way to teach them, as a way to correct them in their thinking. Again, this is a parable that deals with contrast. Jesus is contrasting the faith of a Pharisee with that of a tax collector. And the contrasts are very easy to see. From the normal social standing, you can't get much different than a Pharisee and a tax collector. Okay, Within society, one was seen as a religious, pious, you know, law-abiding, zealous person that uh, God uh, uh, blessed and... Uh, was admired by most in society, while the other was seen as a a selfish, greedy, law-breaking outcast who was willing to prey upon their own people, okay? They were considered uh, just the lowest of the low within society, a a tax collector uh, that worked for the Roman government. As Jesus would begin to tell this parable, no doubt the people had very stark contrast between what they would imagine these people to be like. As Jesus mentioned a Pharisee going to the temple to pray, they would probably envision some guy with long robes and and a phylactery, you know, maybe on the forehead who would be approaching the temple in in solitude. The idea of a tax collector would not, excuse me, would no doubt create this villainous type of imagery of a bad guy entering into a place that he does not belong where there would be great suspicion about his presence and doubt as to whether his intentions in entering the temple were really to pray to God or to pray upon the people that were there. Jesus continued the parable, detailing for us the actions and the attitude of the Pharisee there in the temple. We start off being told that the Pharisee prayed with himself. And that's pretty important that we know, okay? Before we even get to the words of his prayer, we see that the main focus of his prayer was himself, This time at the temple was an opportunity to distinguish himself, to set himself apart. It was all about him making himself look good in the eyes of others and had nothing to do with God. Jesus called these types of people hypocrites. He said, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. His prayer began with a praise to God about how he was not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even a a tax collector, basically sinners. The Pharisee thought that he was different from, that he was set apart from sinners. He did not identify himself as a sinner. He thought himself to be free of sin because he used man as his standard of measuring. And in comparison to other men, the Pharisee thought himself set apart, unlike any of them. The Pharisee thought that his standing amongst men was something that needed to be praised. He thought very highly of himself. He exalted himself. Pharisee then prayed about his religious works that set him apart as well. How he fasted twice a week and he gave tithes of all that he possessed. You see, not only did this Pharisee see a distinction in that which he didn't do, the idea that he didn't steal from people or he didn't commit adultery or he didn't do other unjust things. But he also felt like the things that he did do set him apart as well. He fasted twice a week. Do you guys realize and understand that the law only required one day of fasting per year, the Day of Atonement? So it's like, okay, the law requires one day a year, twice a week. That's me. I'm twice a week, okay? And I tithe of everything that I have, okay? Again, it's, it's look at me, look what I've done. Okay? Jesus pronounced woe against these kinds of men, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The Pharisee thought himself justified, He thought himself to have a righteous standing before God based upon what he did and what he didn't do. Now contrast that with the actions and the attitude of the tax collector. While the Pharisee came up front at the temple for all to see, the tax collector stood afar off, 
recognizing the holiness of that place and the person before whom he was approaching. While the Pharisee seemed to boastfully raise his fist to God as if to demand something from God, as if God owed him for his actions, the tax collector would not even raise his eyes to heaven. He kept his eyes and his face down in shame and in brokenness, not even imagining himself to gaze upon heaven and to look unto the Lord. While the Pharisee beat his drum on and on about how wonderful he was, all the tax collector could do was beat his chest, knowing that at the root of his problems was this wicked and deceitful heart. While the Pharisee triumphed and championed his deeds before the Lord, all the tax collector could do was cry out to God for mercy. The Pharisee thought God owed him, but the tax collector knew that he was the one in debt. He knew what he deserved. He knew what his actions merited. And all he could do was cry out for mercy, for God not to give him what he truly deserved. While the Pharisee thought of himself as one without sin, the tax collector knew better. The tax collector knew that he was nothing more than a sinner. In fact, the definite articles used there in the Greek, it says that he is the sinner, as if to say, you know, like the worst, the example. Okay, I am the sinner. While the Pharisee used other men as his standard for measurement, the tax collector measured himself against the Lord and knew that he was a sinner a man who had fallen so short of God's righteous requirements. Let's read verse 14 and see what Jesus had to say about these two men and how they left that place. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, but it was the tax collector that went down to his house justified. The tax collector was declared to have a righteous standing before the Lord. That's what justified means. It means to be declared righteous. Why? Because he humbled himself before the Lord. He was exalted while the Pharisee would ultimately be humbled because the Pharisee was all about exalting himself. See, the key difference here is that the tax collector had a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. Psalm 34, 18 declares, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. The sweet psalmist David wrote in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah the prophet proclaimed, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, all of those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. You guys, we must humble ourselves before the Lord. We cannot put any trust or confidence in ourselves, in our own works, in the things that we do, the things that we don't do. They won't save us. (laughs) Our only hope is to humble ourselves and cry out for the mercy of God. And as we do so, the grace of God will be poured out upon us. The scriptures state in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. May we be those who have a contrite faith before the Lord, a humility that knows and understands our great need for the mercy and grace of God. And then it's only by the mercy and grace of God that we stand. Let's move on to our final section, dealing with an object lesson on faith in children. Read with me verse 15 to get us started. It says, Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Okay, we'll stop right there. During that day and age, and even still today, it is customary for parents to bring their children to the rabbis that they might pray over them and pronounce blessing over them. 
It was not something that was tied to salvation. It was more of a customary thing that was done, a visible means of conveying God's blessings on the child's future life. Uh, It's very similar to our modern-day baby dedications that we do at our church from time to time, where a family comes, asks for prayers on behalf of their child, a a time where parents commit to raising their children in the ways of the Lord. It would be a very reasonable thing for parents to do in, in bringing their children to Jesus and asking Him to touch them and to bless them. As a rabbi traveling from place to place, that would be a, a normal task a rabbi would be asked to do. However, the disciples rebuked the parents for bringing their children to Jesus and they tried to prevent them from bothering Jesus. And this is surprising to me for a couple of different reasons. For one, it was surprising because Jesus had previously taught the disciples about the importance of receiving little children. We covered this back in Luke chapter 9. Okay, and it was a while ago for us, but maybe you remember. Jesus took a little child, set him by his side, and said to his disciples, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. Jesus told the disciples how receiving little children was likened to receiving Jesus, and not just receiving Jesus, but the Father who sent him. After seeing the significance of receiving little children, how it's tied to receiving Jesus and the Father, you would think the disciples would be all about receiving children. You know, wow, this is a big deal. This is important to Jesus and to the Father. Let's make sure we receive all the children. That's not what happens. Okay? And so that surprises me. Okay? But number two, Jesus just spoke about the repercussions of those that stumble little ones. Back at the beginning of chapter 17, we're in chapter 18, just last chapter okay, of Luke's gospel, he talked about what happens to those who stumble little ones, talking about those who are immature in the faith, but also could be referred to as children. In a parallel account in Mark, Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus was serious when it came to hindering or stumbling little ones. It was better to have a millstone hung around your neck, be thrown into the sea, than it would be to cause one of these little ones to stumble. You know, even if the disciples somehow misunderstood the teaching of how important it was to receive little children, you would think that the ramifications of, you know, stumbling a child, okay, or a little one would have at least stuck with them. That imagery of a millstone tied around someone's neck being cast into the sea, I imagine is not a, an image someone soon would forget, right? And, and so this is surprising to me, okay, that they would act in such a way, especially so soon after he had just spoken about it. The disciples, no doubt, thought that Jesus was much too important. He was much too busy to be wasting his time, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. That wasn't for Jesus. But Jesus did not agree. Take a look at how Jesus responded to the disciples' disciples' actions in verses 16 and 17. He said, But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus churns the rebuke by the disciples upon themselves, telling them, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like children coming to Jesus. The kingdom and the gospel message of the kingdom is a message for the lowly, for the least, for the seemingly insignificant. It's those that Jesus has come for. It's those whom the kingdom of God is made for. Jesus continued, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Understanding what Jesus meant here is very important for us, you guys, because it's tied to entering into the kingdom of God, entering into heaven, into life eternal with the Lord. So we need to make sure we understand what it means here to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. And let me start by stating what it does not mean. It does not mean, as some would suggest, that Jesus is emphasizing the innocence and humility of children. Because let's face it, okay, not all children are innocent and humble. Okay? I've got five of them. Okay? That doesn't describe them. Okay? Um, I'm not going to speak about your kids. You can, you know, your own giggles and smiles tell me you know, that that's the case for you as well. I love kids. Okay? And I love my kids. My 
My eldest is back, uh, Caleb. I'm blessed to have him back here with us. Uh, he got back um, Friday morning. Okay? But you, kids, and especially little kids, right? Life revolves around them. Okay? They are not selfless. They are not innocent. They are not humble. Okay? And so that is not what Jesus is saying. Oh, we need to be humble, innocent little children. That's not... Children aren't that, okay? So don't try and uh, kid yourself, okay? It does not mean that we should be childish when it comes to the kingdom of God either. You know, throughout Scripture, we're encouraged to be mature, to grow, to be wise. Being childish doesn't match up with that. Childish speaks of being immature, self-centered, foolish. This is obviously not what Jesus was implying. Paul writes how when he was a child, he spoke like a child. He understood as a child. He thought as a child. But when he became a man, he put away those childish things. Later on in that same letter to the church in Corinth, he exhorts the believers not to be children in understanding, but to be mature. In Ephesians, Paul writes that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the coming craftiness of deceitful plotting. So Jesus isn't saying to be childish, to be immature, or to be foolish. When he speaks of receiving the kingdom of God as a child, Jesus is speaking about the type of faith children have. It's a childlike faith. There is a difference between being childish and having childlike faith. Childlike faith speaks of the kind of faith that children display in those who are over them, those who are in charge of them, namely their parents. Children, by and large, don't worry or wonder about the love their parents have for them. They trust that their parents are going to take care of them, to provide for them, to love them no matter what. Most little children don't wonder or worry about their next meal. They are confident that their parents will provide for them. Most little children, they run to mommy or daddy anytime they need something because they trust that mom or dad has the answers they need. When a child falls down and he, and he gets an ouchie or a, a boo-boo, okay, they run to mom or dad trusting that they will make it all better, right? We've got magical kisses, okay, and it just heals all those wounds. Most little children don't feel the need to try and impress their mom or dad or think that they have to earn their mom or dad's love or favor. They know it's there and they trust it will continue to be there no matter what. Most children know they can't make it on their own. They know they need mom or dad to make it through life and they put their complete trust in mom or dad to get them through. They are completely and utterly dependent upon mom or dad for their daily sustenance And they're 100% okay with that. We enter God's kingdom similarly. We enter like little children with a childlike faith. We're helpless and hopeless on our own, unable to save ourselves and totally dependent upon our heavenly father. We trust that the father loves us and will care for us and provide for us our daily needs, no matter what the situation We rely upon the Father. We go to Him with all of our pains, all of our hurts, all of our problems because we know He has just the right answer for every situation that He will take us up into His heavenly arms. He will care for us like no one else can ever do. We don't come to the Father thinking that we have to impress Him or thinking that we have to earn His love or earn His favor. It's a given. It isn't something we earn at all. It isn't something we have to work for. It is a gift that he gives us, and it was demonstrated in sending Jesus Christ for us even while we were yet sinners. That is what it means to have a childlike faith. God wants us to be childlike, but not childish in our faith. Those who have a childlike faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross will enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, It is the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. We must place our faith in Jesus Christ, receive from him the gift of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God. That's how we get saved. That's how we ensure our place in eternity with God in heaven, through childlike faith in what Christ has done for us. And this is what God's looking for from us a childlike faith, a faith in God that will lead to our justification and our place by God's side in eternity.
And so there you have it. Three pretty straightforward teachings about contrasting faith and the kind of faith God's looking for in us. And I kept it to three. This makes my wife very happy, okay? She's always saying I make way too many points, okay? Three points. Very simple, okay? Contrasting faith, the kind of faith God's looking for us, how God's looking for a courageous faith in us that will not give up, that will pray for God's will to be done in us and through us. A contrite faith that knows and understands our need to humble ourselves before the Lord, not to place any trust in our own selves. And he's looking for a childlike faith that will trust God for all things and usher us into the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this portion of scripture. Lord, we thank you for the work that you do in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, we thank you um, that we have your word to read from, to grow from, to understand your heart for us, your desire for us. Lord, as we contrasted these different uh, situations, these parables, this lesson upon children and their faith, Lord, I pray that we'd walk away from here just knowing and understanding more of what your desire is for us. Lord, I pray that we would have um, the kind of faith that you're looking for. Lord, that we would have that uh, faith that trusts you for all things, Lord, that, that childlike faith. Lord, that we would have that that contrite faith, Lord, that faith that um, leads us to just humble ourselves before you and know and understand that our only hope is to call upon you, your mercy and your grace. Lord, that we would learn from the parable of the woman and the judge and, Lord, how you desire for us just to have uh, the kind of faith that doesn't give up that perseveres, that's constant before you, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit, that we might display that kind of faith in you, and that we would do so day by day. And we wouldn't look to our own selves or trust in our own strength, but Lord, we'd look to your spirit to strengthen us for all that you have for us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.